Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. We're marking a bit of a milestone with the podcast this week as we hit 1 million listens. And it's been great to hear from so many of you about what you've enjoyed and what you want to hear. So keep it coming. We also want to hear about your family histories. You can follow us on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and you can now contact us via email on warfare at HistoryHit.com. In this episode, first recorded for Dan Snow's History Hit, we have Dr. Mike Martin, who famously critiqued the MOD in 2014 when they tried to prevent the publication of his book on the war in Afghanistan. This book was based on a series of conversations Martin had with the local people of Afghanistan, and he was one of the few people in the military who could speak Pashto. As we hear news of the final withdrawal of NATO troops from the country, it's the perfect time to revisit this episode and hear from Mike about how the conflict in Afghanistan has changed for better and for worse over time, especially in Helmand province where Mike has first-hand experience. So here he is, Mike Martin on the Afghanistan war in Helmand. Good to have you here. Hi, Dan. And now, last time we met, you were very brilliant, and it became apparent that you had many other stories within you, but one of them was this your experience in Afghanistan. You, you as a soldier, spent an unusual amount of time in Helmand, didn't you? Why was that? So, I, I was a political officer for the British Army, and I spoke Pushtu, which is the language uh, in Helmand. How many British officers would have spoken Pushtu? Fluently, yeah. so able to... I don't know, have a conversation with someone in the room whilst earwigging on a conversation that's happening across the room between five and ten. Really? Okay. Uh, And so, and as a result, you were in Helmand for longer than the usual rotation. How long usually would a a, a British officer spend in Helmand if they were doing a kinetic tactical job? Right, yeah. Everyone did six months tours. That was the kind of the standard. And the whole army works on this six-monthly rotation and when you'd been there for six months you'd also take leave in the middle of that so actually you might do three months go home for two weeks and then do two and a half months and of course i mean it's obvious isn't it in a war like afghanistan where local information and context is 
the most important thing. That's the most important resource that you have in that type of conflict. You're never going to gain that currency, that information with that type of tour pattern. But how long did you spend there in that case? So I spent two years. So four um, times the normal. Yeah, not all in one block, but two years spread over four. And so I did a six-month tour to start with, and then I did a a, a nine, ten-month long block to set something up for the army. And then after that, I moved into a kind of consultancy role where I was in and out of Afghanistan all the time. Um, And that was the period when uh, the army paid for my PhD. And you were employed by... What's amazing about you is you were employed by the army to tell them what they were doing wrong, and then when you did that, they went mental and fired you. (laughs) Yeah. So... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so, you know, the army's not one organisation. No, it's sure. a series of fiefdoms, but absolutely, that's basically what happens. The operational army is incredibly flexible and adaptable. And the reason the operational army is flexible and adaptable is because people are dying. And so they're interested in what works. So if there's a guy who's kind of slightly weird, who speaks Pushtu, but sort of understands what's going on better than many of the people out there, even though he's difficult and a pain, they will bend over. And they did bend over backwards to create a position that allowed me to point out some of the problems with their plans and to criticise them. And that then collided with the wider MOD when the war started winding down. And, of course, the MOD is the most bureaucratic, inflexible structure known to man, and they didn't have a space for, for that outspoken criticism. Were you uh, speaking truth to power? So were you going in with officers very much senior to you in terms of rank and age and telling them that they were talking nonsense? Yes, in private, yes. Yeah. Um, so and I know you a bit, and you're, you're quite direct. So, I mean, those conversations were quite direct, were they? Yeah, they were, but they were fine, because... Yeah. Actually, by the time you get to Brigadier or Major General, you're a smart guy. You know, you've got 10,000 people working for you and you're managing a hugely complex situation. You're bright and you know that the official narratives that surround the war, and we can sort of go into the difference if you like a little bit later, but they know that the official narratives surrounding the war are falling significantly short when it comes to actually describing what's going on. They also realise that they need to some degree toe the line to those official narratives because of their position at the head of this organisation. What I found was, in private, not only were these people like accepting of a counter-narrative, they found it incredibly refreshing because no-one else was giving them that counter-narrative. You know, the army is a very hierarchical organisation, and a lot of the time people stuck to the official narratives which describe the war, which is sort of, we've got this legitimate government in Afghanistan and we're fighting the Taliban who, obviously, if the government's good, we're good, the Taliban are bad. You know, this sort of black-white dichotomy that pervades a lot of our understanding around conflicts, certainly in, in, you know, in the Western world. Because the commanders had to propagate that point of view, a lot of the people in the hierarchy just went along with that. You know, we're a hierarchical species. We tend to follow groupthink. We tend to follow what the people above us think. And they found it incredibly refreshing to have somebody come in who understood the military system, who could speak their language, but could actually also turn around and say, what you've just said is complete bollocks. Was the war in Hellmand winnable? (laughs) No. And the reason it wasn't winnable is because we weren't actually fighting the war that we thought we were fighting. 
you know, if you think you're fighting War A and you have objective criteria by which you will determine whether you achieve victory and you drive towards those criteria, but actually you're fighting War B, you're going in the wrong direction, right? So to put some flesh onto those bones, effectively, we saw this war as a we're supporting the Afghan government against the Taliban, who are this movement who sort of throws asses in girls' faces and stuff like that, and therefore we need to defeat them and bring liberal democracy to Afghanistan. It's this sort of clash of ideas, democracy versus Islamism, all that kind of stuff. But that wasn't actually what the war was about, certainly not in Helmand's nor in the rest of Afghanistan. It was actually the tail end of a 40-year civil war in intensity, but actually it had been going on for about 200 years. And over the last 40 years, just sort of zooming in, we had tribes and clans and families and individuals fighting each other over predominantly land, because it's an agricultural society, but also water. You need water to make the land work. And then layered on top of that, various feuds and people smuggling things who wanted to control smuggling routes. And it was people fighting each other. So it was a multifocal civil war. It was a thousand different wars happening at the same time. Now, overlaid on top of that was our sort of ideological government versus Taliban, you know, liberalism, liberal democracy versus Islamism type fight, as we understood it. But what that meant was, because the war was actually about all these actors who were fighting each other for land and water and their grandmother, grandfather's inheritance, they realised that we understood the war as this ideological black-white war. And then they just echoed those ideologies because they wanted to get resources out of us or out of Pakistan or out of Saudi Arabia. And this is what's happened over the last 40 years. On-the-ground actors who are fighting their own little wars appeal to outsiders, say, oh, yes, we're Democrats or we're Islamists and we, you know... And they use that mirroring of outsiders' ideology and ideas to get resources out of those outsiders to carry on their local civil war. So let's think about how this plays out between, I don't know, two villages, right? So you've got two villages who have been arguing over a canal that runs between the two villages. And they both need the water from that canal because they're both farmers. And village A goes to the government of Afghanistan and says, you know, in village B, they're all Taliban. So we've got 20 young men who will join the police and because we believe in democracy and we're going to fight the Taliban over in that village. And the government goes, OK. Or it's an international, you know, the ISAF has set up some militias, ISAF, the International Security Force for Afghanistan, which was a sort of American coalition. Or they've joined, you know, the Americans as a militia. But the, the same detail, we, you know, they're Taliban over there and we're going to deal with them. And then the people in village B then go to Pakistan and go, you know what, those infidels over there in that other village, they are, you know, godless and, you know, it's terrible. Their women walk about without veils, whatever. They spin the ideological narrative. They then get their weapons. Why? This enables village A and village B to try and fight their battle over this watercourse. And it doesn't really matter who moves first, whether it's the side going to the government or the side going to the Taliban. What drives the conflict is these underlying splits over land and water. So to come back to your question, was that war ever winnable? No, we made it much worse. We understood it as an ideological war, which caused us to pour weapons and money in. The actors on the ground exploited those weapons and money to make their war winnable for each individual actor. But of course, because every actor was funded by all these outside players, the war actually got much worse and much more destructive because the outsiders were involved. What were you telling brigadiers, major generals? What were you saying? Were you just like, mate, just go home, there's no point? <laughs> so it's a great question because 
obviously, as soon as you accept the premise that you are making this conflict worse, the next logical deduction from that is, oh, well, we need to leave and go home, right? Because nobody joins the British Army to occupy other countries and to inflict pain and damage on people. That's sometimes the outcome because of poor policies. But actually, the army and DFID and the FCO is full of people who actually believe in what they're trying to do. Now, equally, you think a brigadier is very senior, but they're not. They're right at the bottom of the food chain when we think about, you know, the Prime Minister, the National Security Council, all the way through the FCO. Really, the brigadier is there to just do what he's told. He's given a box to operate in and told to, like, there's your mission, get on with it, right? So what we were never going to do was change the narrative in Westminster, right? And actually, although we said the war was about women's rights and stuff like that, actually what it was really about was supporting the Americans and remaining an ally to the Americans after 9-11. But that's sort of by the by. So we couldn't change the overall strategic narratives of the war. But what we could do was make ourselves a little less shit and to give ourselves a bit more nuance so that we didn't blunder into quite so many manipulations. Because what was going on is, you know, that situation I just described between the two villages, that's a manipulation. And with a little bit of knowledge of what was driving the conflict, it was these tribal differences, it was an argument over some land or whatever, we were able to make sure that at least the British weren't being conned quite as much as they would have been before. And that has the knock-on effect that there are less Afghans that died and there are less British soldiers that died. So really what we were doing, and by we I mean the other political officers, we sort of started a cadre and got that going, is we were trying to ameliorate what was a pretty terrible British uh, policy. Uh, and then you, because you're a, a warrior scholar and they were paying for your PhD at the time, you then wrote a book on the back of the PhD uh, and, and then the army tried to stop you publishing it and effectively forced you out of the army. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. So we, once I'd finished being a political officer, I was going to leave and then the army agreed to pay for my PhD at King's College London to stay and I, I basically wrote an oral history of the conflicts in Helmand. So I, all the people I'd, all the tribal leaders, you know, drug smugglers, police commanders, militia commanders, Taliban commanders that I'd met through my work as a political officer was the perfect network to research the story of the conflict in Helmand over the last 40 years. And so that's what we did from 78 to 2012. We wrote the story of the conflict. And, and because most of them are illiterate, that story had never been written before. And whilst I was doing that, I acted as a kind of consultant for the army. So yes, advising generals and in the UK, teaching units before they went out to Afghanistan. Lots of intelligence corps, lots of COs, uh, commanding officers, um, and you know every unit pretty much that went out to Afghanistan, I spent some time with beforehand to help them in their intellectual development around understanding what was driving the conflict. And the army found that very useful. And the brigade commanders that I worked for found that very useful. As we said, this sort of a very refreshing viewpoint. I then finished my PhD, did my PhD in two years, and then sent the copy to the army. And they said, this is fantastic. I mean, they used those words. This was a view of the conflict that nobody had seen before because it was the Afghan point of view, it was the Helmandi point of view. And it effectively described how... They had manipulated outsiders, including the British and the Americans and the Pakistanis and the Russians, all of them, over the period that they were in Helmand. And so the army found it very interesting. They also, previous to that, they'd actually published 
about a third of my PhD, the sort of what we call the mini viva, which is the thing you do in your first year of your PhD, they actually published that as a book called A Brief History of Hellman's. There's an army publication called A Brief History of Hellman's that they printed 5,000 copies of and made required reading for troops, for commanders and intelligence staff going to Hellman's. So they really liked it. Now, of course, this was the operational army. I then left the full-time army and went into the reserves and went off to work in first Somaliland and then Burma in the private sector for a risk management company. And I was back in the UK on a reserve course and they called me in and said, you're publishing a book. And I said, yes, I am. You've had it for over a year now. I told you I was publishing it when I gave it to you. I've left the full-time army. I'm in the reserves now. They said, you can't do that. And I said, why? And they said, oh, it's you know, it contravenes the Official Secrets Act. It's full of classified information. I said, no, it's not. Um, there's no Official Secrets Act, OSA stuff in it. There's nothing that, no named individuals in the British military, what they call PERSEC, personal security, and no OPSEC, no operational security. There's no details of military operations. This is an academic book. Now, uh, as it turned out, the person who was delivering this message was just delivering it from on high. And they said, hey, look, come and, come and look at this email chain. They wanted to be inclusive. They showed me the email chain from on high. And as we scrolled down, it became clear that actually it wasn't about that. What it was about was that the book was deeply embarrassing because it was, well, it was a hell-manly view of the British. So how could it not be embarrassing? We screwed up in Afghanistan so much that it could not be anything but embarrassing for us and also for the Americans. And so I said, look, I'm very happy to, if there's, you know, OPSEC, PERSEC, any classified stuff, I've got no interest in publishing any of that, so please tell me where it is, and I'll take that out straight away. I've got absolutely no interest in publishing, neither of my publishers in publishing anything like that. But if it's about embarrassments, I'm going to publish. And if you force me, if you order me not to, I'm going to have to resign. So we sort of went backwards and forwards over this for a couple of months, and effectively I resigned because they ordered me not to publish it. And, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a microcosm of the incompetence that they showed throughout the conflict. I said to them beforehand in one of my emails, I said, this is quite a boring academic book. I mean, it's a rewrite of a PhD. You can't get much more dense than that. People aren't really going to read this. However, by banning it, what you're doing is making it more, you know, you're giving it greater infamy, I suppose, is the, the right term. And... And lo, that's what happened. I, I was kind of annoyed about having to leave the army. I still, I still felt there was, you know, a difference I could make. You know, it's definitely an organisation that needs reform. So a friend of mine happened to work for the Times, and it was a very slow news day, so it was front page of the Times. British Army tries to ban its own book, and then slow news day, so it went on the Today programme, Newsnight, so it was carried by all the major news outlets, which pushed the book <laughs> to 37 on the Amazon bestsellers list. Yeah. Chances are it would have just slid out and no-one would have paid any attention No-one would have noticed. Uh, yeah, I mean, what they should have said was, you know, we paid for this. It's very uncomfortable reading, but we paid for it because we're determined to learn the lessons from the campaign in Afghanistan, and it would have been a non-news story. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. 
we've got the big names. It's one of those sort of great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And so you and I have talked in another podcast about, about why, why we fight, why human beings fight. Uh, and so let, let's just um, let's talk about, again, Helmand in the general sense. So ignoring the role of the British Army, the Soviets, the Pakistanis. What, what is required to bring peace to a place like Helmand? Yeah, and a place like Helmand, we could be talking about Somalia. Yeah, sure. We could be talking about Yemen. You know, these Northern are Mali, yeah. Internationalised civil wars where you've got on-the-ground actors who are interacting with outside players who don't really understand what's going on. That's, that's, that's really what we're talking about. And what these places share is an absence of government, OK? And what governments do, I mean, the, the two main functions of government are to reduce violence by holding a monopoly on violence yeah. and to solve problems. Those are the two critical features of government. If you go back 2,000 years, 10,000 years, those are the two primary services between the government and the population. And because of that, we, we being Britain and America, we go in space like Afghanistan and we reconstitute a government and then we try and make that government work for the population in that country so we technical advisors and all this kind of stuff that's never going to work because effectively what you're doing is you're creating a triangle between the government the outsiders and the people who ostensibly the government's meant to be fighting 
And what, what the government end up doing is realising the outsiders have got all the money and not much time and patience, and they just suck money out of the outsiders. And, of course, there's an argument between the government, which is often captured by one party in the civil war, and the other party outside, who are the previous parties in the civil war. So that never works. That just makes it worse. So I think you've got a couple of options, OK? And I accept that there are huge practical problems with the implementation of these options and they're kind of theoretical but you know what what we've been doing is pretty theoretical yeah. anyway so <laughs> it's no better or worse so i think the first option is that you rather than propping up a government or in the case of afghanistan creating a government and then you know ersatz government and then pumping resources through it i think what you could do is basically place the country in some sort of international trusteeship OK, so UN trusteeship. Right. And we did this in Cambodia and we did it in in, in the Balkans. East Timor. Yeah. yeah. So we've done it in various places. And what that does is it doesn't create that triangle between the government in the country, the outside power and the supposedly the enemies of the government, which just gets too complicated to manage. And then what you knew once you've done that, they so that means the internationals become the sovereign power. They become the government of that country. Right. And, of course, you need to choose carefully who, you know, the lead international powers and all that stuff. We want to avoid colonial sensitivities, for instance. Get the Scandies involved. All that kind of stuff. You know, if it's a Muslim country, then Indonesia. You know, all that kind of... You know, so you need to be very careful. But once you've done that, then effectively what you're doing is you're providing the two major functions of government, so justice and security. And, of course, security might initially be provided by international troops, but what you want is local troops with international officers, right? So a bit like after the Second World War when we had Japanese soldiers led by British officers for a long time, and, well, for at least a couple of years in places like Malaya and so on and so forth. And effectively what you do is you rebuild the government from the bottom up, OK? So as you build up, you gradually thin out the international element as people get trained at lower levels of bureaucracy and you gradually lift off, always focusing on those two major functions, justice and security. And then gradually you lift up and up until it's just the top level of government and then people get to, you know, the people in the country get to elect their own government and then the international step off. Of course, we do the opposite of that, is we start at the top and we try and pump money down through the system and that's, that's, that's never going to work. And also we focus on lots of things like healthcare and education, which are important, but there's no point in focusing on those things if you don't have justice and security. And we fail to focus on those things in Afghanistan and they mean that you lose the gains that you otherwise would have had in things like health and uh, building, education. Building like shiny hydroelectric power All downs. that kind of stuff. And then coupled with that, or perhaps separate to that you know, and you can blend these ideas, is, is this idea that you've got to start at the bottom, OK? So what drives these internationalised conflicts is not big ideological divisions, it's arguments between two families over a watercourse that, particularly in tribal societies, you know, one family calls in the rest of their sub-clan, calls in the rest of their clan, and these conflicts start small and end up agglomerating up into much bigger conflicts and then they take on these ideological flavours. Therefore, the thing that you really need to solve is that problem over that water dispute right and this is difficult because what that's the role of the government right the problem is the role of the government is to have a provincial governor or someone who adjudicates between the tribes for instance in southern afghanistan and that's exactly what afghanistan was in the 1800s they cross-posted governors from different regions in the country because those governors were not connected to any of the local tribes or disputes and they could solve them impartially and fairly and that has, hasn't really happened in a place like Afghanistan. But that is obviously the way to solve these small disputes that stops larger disputes being sucked in. And 
what's interesting is, you know, there are... Yes, the traditional way to do it is to cross-post a government, or perhaps have an international who speaks the language who's able to do that. And I accept this is... You've got to move quite quickly through this because you can't have internationals running other people's countries, right? But the, there is some interesting ideas around technology, right? So I'll just give you one example. One of the major problems in places like Somalia, Afghanistan, Yemen is land, as we've already discussed, right? That is land and land disputes is the driving force between, for a lot of these conflicts. And obviously when the government collapses, land records collapse and then no one knows who owns what and people move into other people's land and, you know, this is, drives conflicts all over the world. And there's some pioneering work using blockchain technology and using a, a mobile phone with GPS. What this enables people to do is walk around their land holding and then log that as their land, right? And that, of course, someone else would do that and they'll log their land. And you might find that some of these things obviously overlap. And that then identifies where the land disputes are, mm, right? Nice. And then people are able to then prioritise which land disputes they're going to solve and you're going to, you know, either send someone to that or it gets logged into a system that then people then deal with these land disputes. The government or some sort of tribunal is able to deal with these land disputes. And where blockchain comes into it is everybody, because the way blockchain works, you have a distributed ledger. So everyone who's involved in this land system, land registration system, everyone shares a copy of everyone else's land claims. So that's an uncorruptible system. So no one can hack into it and change who owns what land. Now... There are obviously problems around describing that technology to people who are illiterate. But, but basically what it does is it means it's an uncorruptible system of land registration. And with future changes of government, often what you find in countries that are locked into interminable conflicts is when the government changes, they issue new land documents that supersede the previous ones. And whereas if you have a blockchain register of land, you're not able to do that because everybody has a distributed copy of what all the land claims are. So this is just one idea of how, you know, you can bring, you can marry the old and the new to look at solving some of these problems. Okay, so we do have a peace process as we speak now in Afghanistan. What do you make of it? And, and is it starting from the ground up or is this just another, is it going to be another bout of utopian thinking? Yeah, so look, let's leave aside for one moment actually what's happening in Afghanistan, which is America is withdrawing under the smokescreen of a peace process. You know, people have been trying for years to have... Richard Holbrook in 2009-10, before he died, was trying to drive this political process. And, of course, the, the politics is clearly the only way you're going to um, even approach a war, like, approach the solution of a war like Afghanistan. Of course, what's happening now is even worse because the Afghan government's not even really included. So what's happening is the Americans are talking to the Taliban in Qatar... And they're leaving and they're trying to wring some concessions out of the Taliban, public statements out of the Taliban that enable the Americans to leave with honour. Uh, with with a fig leaf. This is a podcast so you can't see me doing sort of air inverted quotes around the word honour. Yeah. But this is Vietnam, basically. This is the retreat from, you know, this is the Paris Accords, this is the retreat from yeah. Vietnam. But let's assume for a moment that that wasn't what was happening because we've had a bunch of nascent peace conversations now for almost eight, nine, ten years in Afghanistan. So we can sort of look at those as well. And, you know, to your point, I think you hit it bang on. All of those were top-down peace processes, right? And when you have a conflict that is largely draws up from the bottom through those disturbances that I've just, you know, those disagreements that I've described, and it's fueled by outsiders coming in, the question is, if 
the Afghan government and the Taliban, you know, the Quetta Shura in Pakistan or the leadership of the Taliban agree to peace, how much control do they actually have over, in the Taliban sense, that, you know, Talib in inverted commas who's pulling the trigger in Sangin and Helmand province? And how much control does the government have over the police commander in Sangin province or the, the guy who's in the government-sponsored militia? Like, not very much. And ultimately, they've only joined those militias or that Taliban because, I don't know, he's protecting his poppy crop or they've had a family feud for 20 years or, you know. So you can have those peace agreements at the top level and to a degree that will turn off funding taps, right? Which is helpful. But what does it do to resolve the underlying things that are driving the conflict? Nothing. And then what you'll find is there's never a shortage of sponsors for international civil, uh, civil wars. So you might have an agreement between, the, say, the Quetta Shore and the Afghan government, right? But that, that takes Pakistan out of the game. But what about Iran? Because Iran's got strategic interests as well in Pakistan. So they will just, oh, look, there's a bunch of groups in Helmand who previously were sponsored by the Pakistani ISI through the Quetta Shore to achieve Pakistan's strategic aims in Afghanistan. Well, hang on, but Iran's just going to take over the funding of some of those ones because that helps them achieve their ends. So you can sort of turn off one funding tap and that will, but the original disagreements at ground level still remain and then another funder will step in and something. And, and actually, it's interesting, we are actually seeing this. China, China is the one to watch with Afghanistan. As you know, China shares a border with Afghanistan, a tiny border at the end of the Wakhan Corridor. So to the east of Kabul. And China has greatly enjoyed watching America and you know, NATO get caught in the Afghan mangle, because it's fantastic. It, it dis distracts one of your competitors, right? So that's good. And you know, as we know in government and decision-making, the premium is on how much, uh, what we call headspace in 2019, right? How much headspace have you got to solve all these problems? And if Afghanistan's taking up all the American headspace, then that gives the Chinese an advantage, right? Now, of course, what we see, the other thing that we see with human beings is hubris. And hubris is getting involved in Afghanistan thinking you can solve it. And that's exactly what we're starting to see with China very, very slowly. So first they got involved strictly on an economic sense. Copper mines, other mine, mining interests that enable them to, you know, as you know, China's growing, it's sucking in all these resources. And they benefited from the governmental framework and to a degree the security framework along the main highways it was effectively paid for by america so china was pulling out all these resources that the americans were inadvertently helping them do because they were sort of holding the afghan government together and now of course the americans are saying we're off and the chinese are thinking god we've got loads of economic investments in <laughs> afghanistan what are we going to do well we better start propping up the afghan government yeah. And gradually, I think what we're going to see over the next 10 years, very, very nascent at the moment, but I think over the next 10 years, we are going to see a deeper and deeper involvement of China. And as we know, China is having a disagreement with its Uyghur Muslims in Western China. So on, actually very close to that bit that borders the Afghan border. And I think we'll start to see some of the same narratives. So China talks about Islamic terrorism and Islamism when it talks about Uyghurs, right? But I think we will start to see attacks on its economic interests in Afghanistan being lumped into the same bracket and treated in the same way. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see an increasing involvement in China, including the deployment of military advisors. This is how it starts. Military advisors and then gradually troops and so on and so forth. And that is what I think we're going to see is as the West lifts off and out of Afghanistan, because frankly, we've approached it in the wrong way and it's been incredibly bloody and painful and 
expensive and so on and so forth. We'll see China. Somebody will fill that vacuum and that somebody is going to be China. And possibly they will end up fighting a kind of proxy war with India in Afghanistan because, of course, Pakistan has great interests in Afghanistan, keeping Afghanistan unstable, but that's obviously... Pakistan and India have a big disagreement they have done for the last 60, 70 years. So that is one of the reasons why India supports the Afghan government. So we will start to see some other, you know, the internationalised civil war in Afghanistan is going to continue, but different outside players are going to get involved. So the future is bleak if you are an Afghan, um, unfortunately. Well, uh, that's a, a really pessimistic place to end. It's amazing to think of China, you know, flag-following trade. Welcome to the ride, China. The, the, British, the British have bare the scars from that particular, you know, those centuries of engagement. Dude, as always, that was amazing. What a tour de force. Thank you very much. The book that got you hounded out of the army is called... An Intimate War. And your brilliant most recent book is... A Why We Fight. Why We Fight. So come back on the podcast soon. And uh, I know you're about to go on a big adventure around the world, but uh, international scholarship needs you, so don't go away too long. Thanks, Dan. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.